And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, force five. Hey, how's it going? This is the Force 5 Podcast, and I am your host, ex-video store clerk, wannabe screenwriter, and fellow listener, Jason Kleberg. Tonight's guest is filmmaker Tim Troy. He's worked on a lot of TV shows and movies that you know and love, and he's got a short film called Venus that's going to be debuting on January 28th. So, check the show notes for a link to that. Tonight's episode had a bit of a technical snafu with Tim's mic, so the first few minutes sound a little scratchy until we get to the list, and then those noises go away, so please stick around. The topic Tim chose was an interesting one as we talk top five mid-film genre switches. The easiest example of a film like this that did not come up on our list is the 2007 Danny Boyle sci-fi film Sunshine, which uh, I remember watching in theaters. It follows a crew aboard a spacecraft that's tasked with jump-starting the sun via a giant bomb. And that's what two-thirds of the movie is, just straight-up sci-fi. And then in that last act, in the third act, it goes full-on monster movie. And talking about a topic like this, I'm going to warn you going in that as we discuss genre switches, a lot of the times it does involve spoilers. So if we start talking about a movie that you haven't seen yet, just fast forward a bit. So I put trailers in. It gives you a minute to look down from the treadmill or the dishes and jump ahead so you're not spoiled. This episode ran a bit shorter than usual. So in order to pad the runtime a bit, I got two reviews for you. So uh, you're welcome. Speaking of segues, last week we had Eric Peacock from Soundtracker on and got a ton of positive feedback on that. So if you're listening, Eric, you're going to be invited back. And your challenge next time is to come up with a topic that's even harder for the audience to get involved with. I am kidding, of course. And I was actually a little surprised at how many really great suggestions listeners sent over. Force 5 superfan Sean Aguilar gave a few suggestions. He said there's a song on the next Friday soundtrack. Next Friday? Shit, I haven't seen that since theaters called Hot by Tony Estes. I've listened to that song more times than I care to admit because it was between We Murderers Baby, We Murderers Baby, by Ja Rule. I wonder what Ja Rule thinks about that. And Fried Day by Busy. That's Busy Bone. Most Def never heard another song from her, and I have not heard... I haven't even heard that song, but yes, I've never heard another song by her. And he threw this one out there too. New Age Girl from the Dumb and Dumber soundtrack as Jim Carrey is getting ready for his date. Uh, that doesn't happen. Joseph Bridges over on Facebook gave us five recommendations. Anthonio by Annie from The Guest. Dry the Rain by the Beta Band from High Fidelity. That's a good scene. Hold Tight by Dave D. Dozy Mick and Titch from Death Proof. That's quite a pull. Friends by Dragon Sound from Miami Connection. What a ride that movie is. And Hero by Family of the Year from Boyhood. The Find Your Film podcast, which you should be listening to. I don't know who runs that account, but um, Greg, if you're listening, love ya. He said Folk Implosion's Natural One came to mind. I'm guessing that's from the Kids soundtrack. And yeah, that's another band I haven't heard anything from. Mumbly John over on Reddit said The Laws, There She Goes, from So I Married an Axe Murderer. I have definitely heard that song and have not seen that movie, so that would be a good pick. And over on Twitter, your next favorite movie podcast said the one that I was kicking myself in the ass for not remembering. God, I love this song. Scotty Doesn't Know by Lustra from the Eurotrip soundtrack. Holy shit, that's a great song and a great scene. Oh, it's just like a running joke through that scene. It's so good. Speaking of good, remember how I said I was good at segues? John and the Hole is the first movie I saw this week. A kid finds a big 20-foot cement hole in the woods by his house. And then he puts his family in the hole. And that's the movie. It's a weird question. He wanted to know what it's like to be an adult. Can you please stop? When do you stop being a kid? This is your life, John. This is what you want to do. This could be who you are. 
It's not very often that I watch something and stay utterly confused by what I just saw, and John and the Hole confused me on so many levels. There's very little to this movie. John is this teenager who lives in what seems to be a pretty normal upper-class family. One day, while flying his drone, he finds an old bunker that was, uh, it was dug out to be used by something, by somebody at some time, but has since been abandoned. And it looks like it's been abandoned for a very long time. So he comes home, drugs his family, wheelbarrows them to the edge of the hole to lower them down. And in the morning, he tosses them some food and water, and then just goes and does some teenage shit, like playing video games and eating ice cream. There's also a really fucked up wraparound story about a 12-year-old girl whose mom just says, I'm leaving, there's enough money in a shoebox there to last you about 10 months, 12 months, you're 12 years old, you're ready. That has absolutely no connection to the rest of the story. Or does it? Because the mom tells the little girl two stories. Charlie and the spider, Charlie is the gardener who finds and trusts the spider and then is promptly bitten by it, and John and the hole, both of which are true to the audience. This movie seems like a really interesting interpretation of a teenage psychopath at first, and the tension is built to uncomfortable levels. I was actually liking it for like 15 minutes, and then it stays in that gear until you're tired of it, and finally it fizzles out like a fart in a blizzard. The actor who plays John puts on a chilling performance, but does nothing with his newfound freedom, and maybe that's the point. I think the main story of John and the Hole is literally just a story, and the wraparound is the reality. The mother telling these stories to somehow prepare her daughter for what's coming, her eventual abandonment. Unfortunately, it isn't presented clearly enough or with a sharp enough lesson to matter. What's the message? Maybe the whole movie is just about how that mother is a terrible storyteller. I thought about clever titles for this, uh, John is an asshole or John and the whole waste of two hours, but I'm just gonna say that I really, really dislike this movie. I thought it was well shot. I thought it made some interesting choices. The film is presented in like a 4 by 3 aspect ratio, I assume, to simulate the square hole. And the opening title card doesn't hit until 30 minutes into the film. And even had some quality acting, but it is tiring and goes absolutely nowhere. That's John and the Hole from 2021, which I hated. The other movie I saw, I actually kind of liked. This is from 1993. It's a thriller called Malice. Let me tell you what a jury sees. The jury sees a beautiful young woman married to a mild-mannered teacher. They buy an old house and dream of filling it up with children. Now that is a Norman Rockwell painting and you have ripped it to shreds with your scalpel. Looks like you picked the wrong patient to screw up on, Doctor. I didn't pick her. Counselor. Bad things happen to good people all the time. Take my word for it. Malice, rated R. Sneak preview Saturday. Andy is a college dean and is married to Tracy, an art teacher. When Jed, an egotistic surgeon who used to go to school with Andy, shows up, things get pretty weird. Oh, and there's also a serial killer going around killing women and stealing locks of their hair. Malice goes in all kinds of directions, so we're gonna start with the cast. Alec Baldwin is like the third wheel character here, but he absolutely steals the show as this surgeon with a god complex. In his very first scene, he's operating on a patient who has just suffered a brutal attack, and a resident surgeon who's there with him says, we're gonna lose her, doctor. And after the surgery is over, Jed goes to the locker room and confronts him, and he's like, Dr. Robertson, uh, may I call you Matthew? Of course. Matthew. I'm the new guy around here, and I want to make friends, so I'll say this to you, and we'll start fresh. If you don't like my jokes, don't laugh. And if you have a medical opinion, please speak up and speak up loud. But if you ever again tell me or my surgical staff that we're going to lose a patient, I'm going to take out your lungs with a fucking ice cream scoop. Do you understand me? I'm not gonna like you, am I? Don't be ridiculous. Everybody likes me. With a cadence that made me believe that he was sent to this hospital by Mitch and Murray. And this is really the perfect introduction to this character. A damn good surgeon with a chip on his shoulder. And at the hospital, Andy and Tracy, Andy's played by uh, Bill Pullman, and Tracy, played by Nicole Kidman. They run into Jed, which leads to Jed coming around the house and eventually moving into the empty loft on their third floor. But wait, let me back up. 
The girl is in surgery because she was attacked by a serial killer who's whacking women who'd go to Andy's college. And at first you have to be thinking, all right, it's either Andy or it's Jed or it's Tracy who's killing these women. And then out of nowhere, Tobin Bell from Saw walks in. He's the janitor. He walks into Andy's office and it's like, all right, that's the guy, obviously. And Andy's going to be a suspect and the rest of this movie is going to be some twisted tale that puts this college dean into a web of lies that he's got to get out of. But that quickly evaporates because the serial killer plot abruptly stops after a young Gwyneth Paltrow is killed like 40 minutes into the film. And you still got 45 minutes an hour to go. By the way, casting department, great choice casting Goop as a young New England liberal arts student. I bet she majored in candle making. We also get some surgical drama because Tracy has some kind of stomach pains that incapacitate her. Doctors don't know what's going on. And at one point she collapses in her house and Jed has to perform the surgery. But while in surgery, he takes out one of her good ovaries in the process, which leads to a big lawsuit against the hospital Jed works for. And from there, the film turns into this twisty grifter noir story. It's a pretty wild ride, if I'm being honest, that could have easily made today's list. Nicole Kidman is in top form as Tracy, this woman who has a lot more going on than meets the eye. Bill Pullman is our everyman surrogate, somebody getting fleeced in every direction until he gets wise and takes some advice from someone's drunk mother. I do like Bill Pullman, but in this role, he was outmatched by the Kidman-Baldwin duo and really just kind of felt like a wet blanket. Now, uh, as I was watching the movie, I noticed a certain crackle in a lot of the dialogue. And when I watched the credits roll, I realized it was written by Alan Sorkin. Looking back, I can absolutely see the parallels between his more recent films and the egotism at play, especially during a scene in which Alec Baldwin walks on the beach correcting grammar and staking his claim that he's a fucking man that definitely feels like a prelude to Jesse Eisenberg's Mark Zuckerberg character from The Social Network. Malice is a really interesting film, and like I said, it could have easily made a top five mid-film genre switches list. It's filled with red herrings, has more twists than Lombard Street, and boasts some amazing talent, and many other cameos I didn't even mention, like Peter Gallagher plays the lawyer, Anne Bancroft plays um, a really pivotal role, which I won't spoil, and then George C. Scott is in there too for a very short amount of time. It wasn't the erotic thriller I assumed that it would be based on the cover art and the talent involved, but it's a pretty engaging hour and a half of mid-90s trash. If you're interested in seeing it, Kino Lorber put out a pretty decent-looking Blu-ray, albeit with zero extras. So those are what I saw this week. John in the Hole, which I do not recommend, and Malice from 1993, which was a pretty fun watch. While I look to movies of the past, there's a company that's looking towards the future, and that's Oscorp. Oscorp is a huge company with a mom-and-pop feel, and that's because of its amazing CEO, Norman Osborne. Norman went to school for chemistry and electrical engineering and got really good grades. Now he's using his knowledge to help struggling Americans make it in this competitive world. And if you ignore their products like super soldier serums, high-tech gliders, and scary metal goblin suits, it still feels like your local neighborhood corner store. Head to Oscorp's website and use the promo code FORCE for a free NFT with any vial of their brand new product, Devil's Breath. What's an NFT, you ask? Fuck if I know. That's just what they told me to say. Oscorp. Norman for you. Welcome back to Force 5. Tonight, I'm joined by Tim Troy. He's a filmmaker who's got short films coming. He's got a short film series coming. Venus is the first. And he's worked, I mean, he's worked behind the scenes on so many cool things you know and love, including Chicago PD, Man of Steel, Prison Break, Batman Begins, and tons more. Tim Troy, how's it going tonight? It's going very well. How are you doing, Jason? I'm awesome. Thanks for coming on the show. I'm excited to have you on a great topic, which we're going to get to here in a second. But first off, tell us about Venus and the series of microfilms that's coming. So Venus is the first in a series of micro shorts that we're calling Creepy Cuts. Uh, I have a, a group of people that I've been making films with for five or six years now. Uh, and we decided shortly before the pandemic that we were going to start making films that were about a minute to two minutes long, uh, stuff we could do in a day stuff that would just be fun, and it evolved into the idea of taking a, a horror trope, because they're all pretty much horror movies, and 
trying to spin it on its head, you know, presenting a, a kind of a familiar scenario and maybe spinning it one way or another, see what, uh, see what we could come with it that might surprise people or just try and scare the hell out of people as much as we can in, in a minute. <laughs> well, that's the goal, right? A minute or less trying to scare people. That's kind of tough because there's no real time for buildup. It's probably a, a, a hurdle that you had to jump over in terms of scaring people in a minute. It's a fun challenge. Uh, one of the inspirations for it was actually two-sentence horror stories, if you've ever read any of those. They, they go around the internet every six months or 12 months. They, they pop up and there's a bunch, you know, batch of them that, that people are, are doing. It's like a challenge that people do on Facebook or on Reddit. But that was one of the places that I got the inspiration for doing these really, really short movies from. So Venus, I mean, you can't tell us too much because, I mean, it's only a minute long. But uh, is right. what was the inspiration behind Venus? Is there a... Uh... Is there a film that you channeled to film that one? There's a fair bit of the thing in there. Uh, I don't want to give away too much. Like you said, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a two-minute film. So if I talk too much about it, I've pretty much told you the whole movie. But it, uh, it is about a woman that's stranded on the side of the road, and somebody comes up to her, and you're not really sure whether or not uh, she's in danger or not. And then the movie progresses from there. All right. Well, you had me at the thing. I'm looking forward to checking that out now. In terms of your personal inspirations, your favorite films, what are some of those films that you love that might not make tonight's list, just to give people an idea of your tastes? Uh, I am a huge Spielberg fan. Pretty much Mm -hmm. anything Spielberg's made, I will love to watch. And he is an inspiration in just about everything I do. Even though he's not strictly a horror filmmaker, I think there's a lot of of his work that I draw from when I'm trying to make my movies. Uh, I'm also a big Carpenter fan. The Thing is is a huge, huge touchstone for me. Uh, and I, I, my, my trio of filmmakers that I try to say that I am inspired by usually is Spielberg, Carpenter, and Cameron. Uh, I do almost exclusively sci-fi and horror, and those three are, are kind of the big, the big names in the room there. Can't go wrong there with Carpenter, Cameron, and Spielberg. Spielberg's done a lot of really great horror stuff, even if it's like just segments in his own films. Like Jurassic Park has a lot of good horror stuff in there if you look at it from that lens. So I'm excited to, to check out your shorts. That's really cool. Now, tonight's topic was a really interesting one and a tough one. This is like the third tough one in a row here. And we're calling it top five mid-film genre switches. What was your inspiration for tossing this topic my way? Honestly, Venus was one of the reasons that I, I came up with it because there is sort of a genre flip in the middle of it. It's always been a fascinating thing for a movie that can can fool you into thinking you're watching one thing and then take that hard left turn and make you think that you're seeing something else all of a sudden. Sometimes it's whether it's going into a comedy when you thought it was something scary or whether it's going in just in a new direction completely. It's so hard to structure those films and so I always admire them. I was trying to go into this list from the point of view of the viewer going in blind. And I do try to go into most movies that I see blind. I don't watch trailers. I haven't watched a trailer in over 10 years. I go in blind. I read nothing. And some of these I experienced firsthand. Some of them I wish I could have experienced. But I went in with this lens of, all right, somebody watching this for the first time, they think they're watching one movie. And then at some point they get a completely different movie. It's just interesting having the viewer be taken on this ride of, thinking it's one thing, and going to another place. I'm really interested in what's on your list. Tim Troy, are you ready for this list? Let's do it. You know what's going to happen? You know what's happening here right now? I know what's going to happen. No, 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 no. What? You just made the list. Top five. Top five. Top five. Mid-film genre switches. Tim Troy, what do you got at number five? This one's a little squishy. I'll warn you ahead of time, but I I think I can defend it. Uh, I went with Jaws. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill a mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him Jaws. Jaws starts as what's basically a disaster movie or like a B movie from the 50s where it's the one guy on that's trying to tell everybody what's going wrong and nobody believes him. 
and disaster follows it. But then halfway through the movie, it becomes what's essentially like a chamber drama with three guys on a boat. And one of the most interesting things about it, if, if you notice, is the, the score actually is what made me think of this because the score flips in the middle of the movie. You know, John Williams does basically the same thing with the, the suspense. And you know, there, there's a little bit of happy music through the, the beginning when the, like for, during the 4th of July, right? Yeah. When all the people are coming out on the beach. There's a little bit of happy music there, but most of it is that suspense, the, the theme, everybody knows the bottom, bottom. Halfway into the movie, when they actually get out on the sea on the Orca, it switches to almost like a, an Errol Flynn seafaring movie and becomes this hmm. completely different score. And it underlines that, that switch in the movie for me. And I've always found that interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I've never really looked at Jaws from the perspective of it being kind of a genre mashup. But I guess what you're saying does make sense. That person calling for people to, you know, heed their warnings, uh, a la 2012 or any other real disaster movie. I mean, it does check out. That's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting parallel. And I guess it's fitting that you got some Spielberg on your list, too, here at number five with Jaws. It would have to sneak in there somewhere. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Jaws at number five. I'm not going to argue with that explanation. I guess uh, at my number five, I'm going to talk about one of your favorite directors. And I don't know if this one made your list or not, but when you presented the topic, it was one of the first ones that came to my head. Uh, 1997's Titanic. On December 19th. Iceberg, right ahead! Nothing can prepare you for Titanic. I won't let go. 20th Century Fox and Paramount Pictures present Leonardo DiCaprio. We have to stay on the ship as long as possible. Kate Winslet. You jump high, jump right. From James Cameron. I don't want to draw your time together. Director of T2 and True Lies. This is it. Oh, Titanic. Rated PG-13. Starts Friday, December 19th at theaters everywhere. For the first half of this film, this is a... I mean, everybody I'm sure has seen Titanic. But for the first half, it's a clunky love triangle melodrama as we follow this Romeo and Juliet kind of story of Jack and Rose. And there's a love triangle as her fiancé Cal is on board. There's some upper class versus lower class stuff going on. He's not good enough for you. You know, all the all the romantic tropes. And I'm trying to think, if you're going into Titanic completely blind, you don't know about this ship. I mean, obviously, it's going to be Im nearly impossible. But let's say you did. You didn't know that you're the ship... You're a Martian or something, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You didn't know about the history. You just come in. You're watching this love story. And then all of a sudden, the ship hits an iceberg. And halfway through, we change genre from a full-on romantic drama to a full-on disaster film as the ship starts sinking. Now, it's, it's been a couple years since I've seen Titanic, but I think that in terms of disaster movies, it has some of the most incredible set pieces. I mean, obviously, Jim Cameron, a technical marvel, and this, these scenes are no less. And clocking in at three hours long, it, it has this moment of excitement about two hours in where it's like, holy moly, this is all of a sudden a different movie. Like I said, uh, at, at three hours long, it still beat every box office record up to that point. It's one of the highest grossing movies of all time. And I think that even if you're not a, a huge fan of romantic dramas, if you haven't seen Titanic, you really owe it to yourself to see it. It's, it's a marvel of a movie, but it's definitely two genres smashed together. I could not agree more. Uh, I'm actually really glad you brought this up because I had it as one of my honorable mentions. So nice. now we get to talk about Titanic too. I think Titanic holds up to this day. It is yeah. a great film. It is entertaining to no end. You know, if, if I catch it on cable or something, I'm like, I'm, I'm going to probably end up watching this whole movie. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan of, of the, the, like the romantic plot, but once it hits disaster movie, it is right up my alley. And uh, anytime yeah. my wife wants to watch it, I'll definitely watch it with her because I know what's coming. I know we got some excitement coming. Tim Troy, number four for you. My next pick is Audition, if Ooh. you've seen that. Yep, uh, Takashi Miike. Yeah. So if someone has not seen this movie and doesn't want to know what the twist is, you should, you should stop now because we're going to have to ruin it. But Audition is this really crazy film that starts out slow and cheesy and strange and it's basically a romantic comedy for what 90 minutes of the movie something like that <laughs> yeah 
And then at the very end, it takes the hardest turn I think I've ever seen a movie take right into absolute terrifying horror. When you start as a romantic comedy and you are somehow ending the movie with people getting their feet cut off by piano wire, something is something has gone wrong <laughs> in the best kind of way. Yeah, uh, this one definitely works. I, I I would say I'm a fan of Mike. I'm kind of a fan of Mike because he puts a lot of stuff out there. He is a prolific filmmaker, and I don't love it all, but he is always interesting. His movies are never boring, and I think Audition's probably one of his best. I would agree, and I cannot understand how he makes movies that fast. I, I, he makes movies faster than you can watch the movies. I think. Yeah. Yeah. He's, I mean, there, if you look at his IMDb page, there are years where he has like four movies come out and they're not small movies. These are bigger movies with a lot of effects and he just cranks them out. I don't know how he does it either. Okay. Um, you know what? I'm going to switch my list up a little bit because your number four kind of tees up my number four. And this is going to be one of my deepest cuts here. Okay. This is a movie from 1978. It's called to be 20. This is an Italian movie. Yeah, and I, I'm sure that most people probably have not heard about To Be 20. But if you've heard about it, it's probably because of the genre switch. So I'm going to set up the, the scene for you if you're watching this again from, from knowing nothing about it. This is about uh, two girls named Leah and Tina, played by Italian genre princesses Gloria Guida and Lily Karate, who are, in their own words young, hot, and pissed off. And they decide to hitchhike to Rome to find this commune where they think they are going to be worshipped like goddesses, stay there for free, and have all the sex they want. It's essentially an Italian sex comedy. The commune, when they get there, it's not all it's cracked up to be, and it ends up being a front for a prostitution ring. But even through all of this, it's all played really light, really breezy, it's got this uh, really interesting disco backing music, and it's kind of a commentary on the death of the hippie, the, the end of the sexual revolution, the whole sex, love, and happiness, and all that stuff. It's so goofy that at one point, there's an impromptu music video where the girls, the two girls are dancing on the steps in Italy, and there's one guy playing a guitar as they walk and dance through the streets, and he follows them with this guitar, of course, he's a single guitar player, and the music backing them is a whole disco track. It's it's like bonkers. Now, if you've seen To Be 20 and you're thinking, there's no genre switch in there, then you've probably seen the producer's cut. There's two cuts of this film, and the one that was originally shown in the United States was the producer's cut. And it ends as these girls, they leave the commune, they go to this restaurant, they get kicked out of the restaurant for dancing, and like that's where the film ends. Well, this is a film directed by a, a guy named Fernando DeLeo, who made a ton of Italian genre films like Caliber 9, The Boss. Um, these are all like really great police movies, but they're also pretty brutal movies. <laughs> like, first time I'm watching this movie, it's like, uh, this doesn't feel like a Fernando DeLeo film. It's got a lot of sex, a lot of goofy comedy, but nothing that we're used to from him until you see the director's cut because the director's cut is 10 minutes longer and the producer's cut cut out the final scene of this film, which sees the, the women leave this restaurant because they get kicked out for dancing. And then it turns into the darkest, like last house on the left wood scene I don't even want to describe what happens to these two women in the last 10 minutes. And it's bizarre because it just ends after that. And it feels like the whole film up to that point was a completely different movie movie because this just happens out of nowhere. 2B20, 1978. I don't know if it's available on YouTube or not. Uh, Raro Video put out a Blu-ray of this and it does have the director's cut. So if you're curious... That's where you can watch it. But um, yeah, it's a really, I, I couldn't picture leaving the Italian theater after that last scene. And it's obvious why they took it out for the producer's cut. But uh, it's just such a bizarre move at the end. <laughs> I, I don't even want to describe it. But yeah, it, horrible things happen to these women out of nowhere. It sounds like a blindside from completely out of nowhere. Yeah. 
when it comes to this movie, I don't recommend watching it one way or the other. Uh, it's not a great movie, but I'll tell you what, that switch at the end is jarring as hell. You got to wonder what goes, what the point was, like what goes through the, the mind of, uh, what was his name? DeLeo? DeLeo, yeah. And I know I've read, um, I've read a lot of essays on this and there are conflicting opinions about what it means. Some people are saying it's punishment for the girls for all the sex that they've had. And then he came out and said, it's not that at all. It's just, uh, just that's what what my style of filmmaking was. And and who knows what it is. I kind of do read it as, uh, in quotations, slut shaming, which I really don't appreciate. So uh, like it's it's not um it's not a high movie for me, but it is a jarring last 10 minutes. Number three for you. Uh, number three is The Descent. Okay, give me a smile. Gino, are you sure we're going the right way? I've never been lost in my life. <laughs> There's only one way out of this chamber, and that's down the pipe. I'm stuck! I can't breathe! Okay, Sarah, you have to calm down. I'm coming, I'm coming back! Okay? Okay. <laughs> The genre flip in this is more subgenres and horror, but it is something that will blindside anybody that hasn't seen this movie before, because I don't think there's any foreshadowing at all of the surprise twist in this movie. So the descent starts as a claustrophobic survival horror movie where five women are all trapped in a cave that no one knows they're there. And halfway through the movie, it turns into a monster movie from completely out of nowhere. These monsters just show up. You didn't know they were coming. The reveal of the monsters is a great jump scare. And it becomes all about fighting these monsters off all of a sudden. And like I said, the best thing about this is that there is no foreshadowing to it at all. You know, another movie probably would have seen them like sneaking around and you would have seen a, you know, like, subjective POVs of the the monsters like looking at the the women as they're trying to get through the cave there's none of that you just are dropped into this completely from from left field and it's one of my favorite movies to show people for that very reason i just i love watching people react to the monster showing up i love the descent i think the descent's a super underrated horror movie Neil Marshall i think is an awesome director he's the guy behind dog soldiers and doomsday which i thought was actually a really good movie and yeah the descent you're right i haven't seen it in a long time i probably need to revisit it but uh, i i definitely remember that that came out of nowhere it gets my vote for maybe the best horror movie of the last i always said the best horror movie of its decade and still maybe the best horror movie of the, the century so far yeah i mean you could definitely make an argument for that that's the descent from 2005 at number three for you Number three for me, I guess I will go to I'll go to another horror movie that doesn't technically come out of nowhere. But uh, this one is from 2014 and it's called Spring. Get out of town, Evan. Can I get a flight somewhere? Anywhere. Actually, hold on a second. Should I go to Italy? What? seeing this girl she's really pretty that shit gives me some doubts you're the most attractive person i've ever seen but that doesn't outweigh that you might be a mental patient and i gotta make sure you're the kind of crazy i can deal with no no i'm a bunch of confusing biochemistry and some crazy hormones Let's see if the yank of cape out like i don't think you're ready for where this is going explain it to me I don't know how much longer I'm going to stay here. Love Spring. Benson and Moorhead are, I will watch everything they do. Nice. Yeah, I've been trying to get them on this show for a little while here. At some point, it will work out. But uh, this follows a kid named Evan Russell. He's an American, and he's going through a shitty part of his life. He, He just lost his mom to cancer. And the next day, following his mom's funeral... He gets into a physical altercation with a guy while he's drinking at the restaurant that he works at, resulting in him getting fired. So he's lost his mother, he's lost his job, and his friend is like, you gotta get out there, 
travel a little bit, clear your mind. So he decides to go to Italy. And while in Italy, he meets this girl named Louise. She's uh, flirtatious, she's gorgeous, and he's a little suspicious at first, but he becomes more interested in her. And because he's interested in her, he takes a job at a local farm and he starts living in this small southern Italian town. And if you're going in blind to this movie, the first half feels like a cousin to Before Sunrise. It's kind of meandering. It's beautifully shot. It's just this hazy picture of Italy. It feels like so many of the frames within this film could be a painting. And then halfway through, it changes abruptly from a romantic drama to a body horror creature feature because this woman, Louise, reveals that she has a dark secret. She's a shape-shifting mutant who is 2,000 years old and recreates herself every 20 years by getting herself pregnant and changing into different creatures in the process. We see this the first time as he walks into her apartment and sees her as like this crazy octopus creature. It's a really, really good movie. Uh, Lou Taylor Pucci as Evan is great, as this just lost soul who's fallen in love with Nadia Hilker's confident, beautiful Louise. I thought they had great chemistry together. She, by the way, if her name doesn't ring a bell, she's a German actor who's now, uh, you can catch her in The Walking Dead. But yeah, I, I think Spring is a great movie. And like I said, it is beautiful. And uh, just that, that twist, if you watch it fresh, you really don't see it coming. I don't think there's any way you could see it coming. I, I, I think that's another movie where they don't really foreshadow it at all, right? It's been a while since I've seen it. Yeah, I mean, you can tell there's stuff going on in the streets, but you don't know like you don't know that there's a creature involved. Benson and Moorhead just have these off-the-wall ideas that translate into these really, really cool movies. The Resolution and the Endless are more of my favorite horror movies of this century. Yeah, yeah. Endless was really interesting, too. Yeah, I actually, I saw them do that at uh, the Chicago Film Festival and I got to meet them. And they're just, they're the most down-to-earth cool guys you could ever hope to talk to. Oh, that's awesome. Did they do a, a Q&A? They did. Nice, nice. All right, cool. Number two for you. Uh, number two is probably the one that most people will think of when they think of this this uh, topic. And I'm going with From Dust Till Dawn. Nice. That's my number two also. <laughs> do you want to live through this? On ancient ground. A terrifying evil has been unleashed. Now, five strangers are our only hope to stop it. Oh, yeah! On Friday, January 19th... Richie, look out! The showdown... Open the door! ...is on. From Robert Rodriguez, from Quentin Tarantino, from dusk till dawn, rated R. Well, from dusk till dawn, for... The- the three people with listening to this movie, this uh, podcast that haven't seen that before starts out <laughs> as what is essentially a Quentin Tarantino film from beginning to end, all the way down to him starring in the movie. And about halfway through the film, Selma Hayek comes out and does a, a dance because they're in a, basically a strip club. And at the end of the dance, she reveals herself to be a vampire and half of the strip club is also vampires and they are all attacking the, the patrons in one of the goriest sequences you will ever see on film. And from there, it turns into like five or six people against a whole horde of vampires. Yeah. And it's just it's just an amazingly gory, funny film from there on. It's it played very, very serious from the start as like a heist movie, crime, crime thriller. And then it takes that hard left turn. And all of a sudden you're in this goofy B-movie vampire film. Yeah, it's definitely an intriguing switch. And like you said, stars Tarantino also as his brother is George Clooney. They are the Gecko brothers. The first scene in this movie has them rolling up to, well, it it shows this cop rolling up to like a gas station liquor store and uh, the the cop walks in and you could tell it's all Tarantino dialogue. Michael Parks as the, the sheriff who walks in. And I don't remember the actor's name, but the guy who plays the gas station attendant is great in this scene. But it, it turns all of a sudden very bloody and very over the top as the uh, gas station attendant gets lit on fire and the whole place goes up and explodes. And then it uh, it gets a little more serious from there. And they kidnap this family who has an RV and they're in Texas. They want them to smuggle them over the border. And they do. 
and they end up at, like you said, the strip club called the Titty Twister in the desert. And that's where the geckos are going to be. They're going to hole up till they meet their contact. And yeah, during that bar fight, all of a sudden, hard left turn into vampire movie as these guys that you love to hate are trying to, to battle their way out with the the family that they brought there, head by, headed by the uh, patriarch Harvey Keitel. Goddamn, it is a... Um, it's a barn burner movie. It's really, really fun. Directed by Robert Rodriguez. It's goofy. It's got its goofy parts, like the uh, Tom Savini dick gun <laughs> that comes out <laughs> yeah. in the middle there. There's like a disco ball that's that's kind of goofy. Uh, the first half really feels more like Tarantino. The second half feels like Robert Rodriguez finally got a chance to be creative with the script. And uh, it's a great movie. It's a great movie. It's got all the Tarantinoisms that you've come to expect without him directing it, including the foot fetish stuff, which is on full on display with uh, his character and Selma Hayek. Goddamn. <laughs> That's a movie I wish I hadn't known what the twist was before I went into it. I, I'm pretty sure I was spoiled on that before I saw that movie, because sitting in a theater or something watching that and not knowing what was coming, I think that would be a great experience. Yeah, I agree. And I don't remember. I, I, I mean, I saw it a long time ago. I probably saw it in 97, 98. So I don't remember if the twist was spoiled for me or not. But I love that movie. I think it's great. So that was your number two. That was also my number two. So here we go to the grand finale at number one. Tim Troy, what do you got? I've got Predator. Whatever it is out there, it killed Hopper. And now it wants us. Nothing like it has ever been on Earth before. She says the jungle. It just came alive and took him. It kills for pleasure. He was skinned alive. It hunts for sport. He's killing us one at a time. But this time, if it bleeds, we can kill it. It's picked the wrong man to hunt. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Predator, rated R. The hunt begins Friday, June 12th at theaters everywhere. From the beginning of it, it feels like it's an over-the-top, typical Schwarzenegger 80s movie where you have the dumb one-liners, you know, he throws a knife and sticks somebody into the wall and he says, stick around. And, and <laughs> it's it's all of these silly things with all these explosions that are everywhere. You have, a, you know, you have Jesse Ventura, the professional wrestler in the cast. You have these badass guys that are all trying to out-macho each other, Carl Weathers and and Schwarzenegger doing the, the handshake, you know, <laughs> bicep thing. All of it is is just dialed into making it as cheesy as possible of an action movie until it turns into a full on slasher film with a alien as Michael Myers. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's true. I mean, it's structurally, it's all slasher movie. It's you, you're killing people off one by one. You're hanging the bodies up for people to find. And it comes down to Arnold Schwarzenegger as the, you know, the quote unquote final girl, final girl who has to use his brain to, to stop the monster. Yeah, that's a great choice. It's been too long since I've seen Predator, but I just absolutely love that movie. The script, Shane Black wrote that script, and it is, it's amazing. I mean, I think if you, if you haven't seen Predator in more than like a, a week, it's probably been too long, really, so, right? <laughs> I agree, I agree. Yeah, great choice. Goes from straight-up war movie to sci-fi slash horror movie. I, I dig it. And I'm glad that we did not match on our number ones, because that means... We're going to have nine picks here for people to check out, not including the uh, honorable mentions here. My number one is one that I got to give credit to my wife for reminding me about because I brought this topic up to her as I was trying to do my research and do my thinking and sitting in my movie room. And she's like, hey, what about 2012's Place Beyond the Pines? Who's that guy? He's yours. What can you tell me? I heard from you over a year. Just took off. My son and I should be around him. I wasn't around my dad looked the way I turned out. How are you gonna take care of us? I can't think of another line of work that I'd rather be in. You're so smart, you can do anything you want. Just don't understand why you're doing this. I'm a cop, Jeff. Got a kid? You wanna provide for that kid? You gotta do that using your skill set. And your skill set? Shit to hell. Everybody wants to live, put your hands in the back! 105, they pursuit suspect. 104, I got a visual on a motorcycle. This one is directed by Derek France. It stars Ryan Gosling, Bradley Cooper, Eva Mendez, and uh, Ben Mendelsohn. And there's also Dane DeHaan later in. It's a great cast, great cast. 
back in 2012, well, I, sh- I say back in 2012, but uh, from, you know, 2004 until present, my wife is the world's biggest Ryan Gosling fan, among all the other Ryan Gosling fans. And we're going to see anything Ryan Gosling's in. So we go to Place Beyond the Pines because she's the Gosling fan. It starts as this really interesting, really um, gritty bank robbery film. It's about Ryan Gosling. He plays this um, this drifting circus act. He's tatted up. He's chain smoking. And he um, he's basically uh, shit. I don't know what they call it, but he rides dirt bikes as stunts. So he's a stunt man, essentially these traveling circuses and uh he comes to this town that he was in before and finds out that he has a kid with a woman there who he had a one night stand with years before so he decides he wants to stick around in town and help support the kid it's um kind of dramatic at this point but he has to get money somehow so he goes back into his old tricks of robbing banks he does it on his dirt bike as he drives away, he's got a, a partner who picks him up in a van and, the, and he drives into the back of this like box truck and that's how they get away. It starts as this bank robbery film, but about a third of the way through, he gets cornered by a young cop played by Bradley Cooper, who we knew was in the movie going in. And they have this standoff in this house and you're thinking, how are these guys gonna get out of this? Shots are fired, Ryan Gosling falls out the window as he is shot, Bradley Cooper is shot in the leg. He crawls to the window, looks over, and Gosling is dead. We go into the next third of the film, which is really like a police informant slash district attorney cop drama, where people are trying to cover up the money that was taken during this bust. So he turns police informant, and then we all of a sudden switch for the last third of the film into a family drama years in the future, as an older Bradley Cooper as the DA now has to deal with his son and the son of Ryan Gosling as they get older. It's a really interesting movie that kind of switches genre three times, from a bank robbery movie to this informant to the family drama years later. And I always thought that was interesting. I can tell you this much. My wife, while watching this movie, very disappointed that she did not have more Ryan Gosling. But I was welcoming uh, the Dane DeHaan in the third act. I think the first act is great. Second act, pretty good. Third act, eh, kind of lukewarm on. But um, Ryan Gosling, in the time he's in the movie, really great. I mean, he's robbing these banks, and his voice is cracking as he's yelling at people to get on the ground. It's something that I've always loved about him. And Eva Mendes is great in this, in this role, too, as this mother who's just working at a diner trying to keep her kids safe from all these outside influences. Just, yeah, just a really good movie. Place Beyond the Pines 2012. I know I just spoiled it, but if you haven't seen it, go watch it anyway. Good movie. Good list, Tim Troy. Did you have any honorable mentions that you wanted to bring up? Yeah, sure. I'll throw out a couple. Uh, Full Metal Jacket was one, which I think everybody is, probably knows the, the switch there uh, from training montage kind of movie and kind of a tragic training montage into a war movie set in Vietnam. Yep. Uh, the, the other ones I had were Psycho, oh, which yeah. is a heist drama until it becomes the, the murder mystery. I'd also say District 9 for its flip from mockumentary into straight traditional filmed, uh, traditional filmed action movie. And then last but not least, my last honorable mention was Up. If you, see, if you can watch up and see the first 10 minutes of, of the film without completely breaking down into tears, I don't know what's wrong with you, but you should be checked. <laughs> and then because it's, it's a gorgeous little short film that starts this movie, and then the rest of the movie turns into a, a kid-friendly action adventure. The first 10 minutes of it is just heartbreaking drama. Uh, I've got a couple that were not mentioned. The one that I think is the most obvious that neither one of us brought up is Sunshine from Danny Boyle, which goes two thirds sci-fi movie. And then the last third, which didn't really work for me or most anybody. I think it turns into like a horror slasher film Uh, behind the mask. The rise of Leslie Vernon is like a mockumentary that goes full slasher at some point. The John Woo 1990 film bullet in the head is a really interesting one that I reviewed not too long ago on this show that goes from this action movie, like it's it's almost like an action slash mob movie 
that goes full uh, deer hunter at some point in the, in the second half of that one. And then one that I thought was really interesting, and I, I really wanted to put it in my top five, but I just haven't seen it in a very long time. And uh, I, I didn't want to come in without rewatching it is 1986's Something Wild. It's a movie that is kind of like this kooky romantic comedy that goes into uh, a far more dramatic third act when Ray Liotta shows up as the ex-boyfriend. That's a really, really interesting movie. And Something Wild's got a Criterion disc out if people are interested in checking that out. Uh, Really, really good movie. Good choices. Yeah, Tim, Troy, great list. Uh, Now, Venus, you said going to be out on the 28th. Yes. Where can people find this? So everything that we have is up on the same YouTube channel. It's YouTube slash Crazy Little Monster. And we have a few films that we've shot previously. And then the new series called Creepy Cuts will start on the 28th with Venus. Awesome. I will put that in the show notes. Where else can people find more of your work or follow you on social media? Where do you want people to go to see your stuff other than the YouTube channel? Are there any other places? Uh, We have a website, crazylittlemonsterproductions.com, which is updated with everything that we currently have out and and watchable. Uh, You can also follow me personally at Timothy Troy at Facebook. I respond to messages. If anybody wants to get in touch with me, it's easy enough. Uh, and then we also have a Instagram for crazy little monster and a Twitter for crazy little monster. Although we're not on those nearly as much. I will put links to all of those in the show notes. So please go check that out. January 28th, go and check out Venus, the first in the series, and then just subscribe so you can get all the rest in the series as well. You know what they say, all good things must come to an end. What are your favorite mid-film genre switches? Let me and Tim Troy know on social media. Force5Pod on Twitter. Force5Podcast on Instagram. I'm also on Reddit. I'm also on Facebook. Your comment might just make it to the next show. Uh, If you want a sneak peek at what I've been watching, what I might be reviewing on next week's show, follow me on Letterboxd. That's also Force5. And of course, if you liked what you heard, please review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell your friends to become listeners along with us. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some movies with some dope mid-film genre switches. Mm-hmm.